Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 105, being recorded on Sunday, October 22nd, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We started working on a little news show this week, and as we got into it, we realized that the big news that is dominating the retail and e-commerce world is one event, Stitch Fix's S1 for their IPO. So as we got into it and started working on this week, we realized that uh, the Stitch Fix IPO is really a platform that we can use to talk about some of our favorite topics here on the Jason Scott Show. It's got a little bit of everything, Jason. It's got IPOs, venture capital, and exits in e-commerce, subscription commerce, which we've talked about, one of your favorite topics, personalization, machine learning, and AI. Uh, there's an Amazon undertone where you know this is uh, one of the few companies that's made it out, uh, hopefully knock on wood, uh, in an Amazon-dominated world. How are they doing that? And uh, for all our e-commerce retail listeners, there's some really interesting KPIs or key performance indicators here, like the cost to acquire customers and lifetime value churn. And one of our other favorite topics is private label and digital native vertical brands. So uh, the Stitch Fix IPO covers everything. It's like our last 104 episodes all rolled into one. It's amazing. Yeah, so clearly uh, Katrina over there has, must be a big listener because she's kind of wrapped it all into one company, which we appreciate. Very much so. So uh, a lot of the this is kind of an interesting story. So we were at Code Commerce, and I, we reported this on the podcast for those of you that follow this. So in March there was Shop Talk, and uh, Jason Del Rey had Code Commerce and had the founder of Stitch Fix, Katrina, up there, and he kind of baited her and said that his sources are saying that there are over 500 million in revenues. I, I think a lot of people in the industry didn't really believe they were that large. And then she said, I can't talk about it, but we aren't a billion dollars yet. So that was really interesting because she, you know, not only was it a, uh, a denial about 500, it actually kind of put a bracket on it that essentially said, I'm not going to deny 500. I'm going to say we're less than a billion. So then it gave us kind of this sliding scale of somewhere between 500 million and a billion is kind of where they were. So speculation was running rampant with that. And then they hired a CFO. They had a COO change. um, And uh, voila, here we go. Boom. The, you know, they're actually a $977 million business this year, which is pretty darn impressive. Their year uh, just uh, it runs August to August, I believe, which is why they can talk about 2017 and it's not over yet. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting that here is this pretty big company, uh, you know, kind of in the billion dollar revenue club here. Uh, and then another thing that's interesting is it's pretty capital efficient. So it's profitable, which is good. Uh, and then also they raise, you know, between 40 and $50 million in venture capital. And a lot of these other billion dollar companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars of, of capital. So really interesting case study. Um, 
they also talked about at the code conference that you know they're uh, they're launching into other categories. So uh, they've launched men in that business in six months is where it took three and a half years for women, and they were launched plus, and it's already doing in more in its first month than Stitch Fix did in its first year. So we had a lot of nice kind of uh, little data points from that conference, and then um, you know the the S one launching uh, has been pretty exciting to read through that. Both Jason and I have read through it with a fine tooth comb, and our job in this hot take slash deep dive is to pick out the juicy parts for you guys and walk you through it. For sure. And we're super lucky as uh, regular listeners will know, uh, Scott is the financial markets guru amongst the two of us, um, partly because I'm completely inept and uh, uh, partly because uh, you you actually uh, took a, uh, your own company successfully public um, and presumably learned a, a few things along the way. Um so I'm hoping you can get things started by giving us all a primer um, in the IPO process. And I'm going to start you off with a question. Uh, and I may have misread this, but I had had uh, picked up a couple places that they may have filed earlier in the year confidentially. And then there's all this talk this month about this them doing the S1 filing. Was that a red herring? Is this an, a new filing or are we just seeing what they filed back in in July or August. Yeah. The, um, so what happened is the way IPOs worked before 2012 was you filed your S one and everyone could see it. And that was super annoying because, uh, S ones go through usually like 10 or 20 drafts. So you submit it. And then the sec is the government body that regulates these things. They'll come back to you and they'll say, Jason, what did you mean by this? And then you'll answer and then I'll be like, okay, well, you need to tell potential investors that. So there's this like back and forth. Also, um, you may not, you may not know it's really this kind of a nonlinear risk point where you decide to file this one because you've really hung yourself out there and maybe you have a bad court. Maybe you're talking to the sec for six months. It usually takes, and you have a bad quarter in there. Um, or, markets turn south. Um, so to help companies go public in 2012, they passed the jobs act, which, which does stand for jobs, but it actually stands for jumpstart our business startups. And what that allows you, what they do is they, they separate the, the filing. So as a startup, and there's certain definitions around this, um, you can choose to have a confidential filing. So, uh, when we did ours, we were totally confidential, but I think uh, Stitch Fix actually announced that they had filed confidentially, um, which is just a signal that kind of says, uh, you know, it, it was their choice. You can you can do that or not. There's probably some reason they decided to do it. So in July, they announced that they had filed confidentially. So what that allowed them to do is to work with their bankers, work with the SEC, get a quarter kind of under their belts, uh, and then you know expand. Uh, it also lets you see how other IPOs. So in that time frame, they were able to see how Blue Apron did, for example, or you know I think Snapchat had gone public by then, but they they could see kind of how it worked. So that that kind of it's really nice because it gives you the ability, um, if you want to, you can actually kind of yank the filing and not go public by announcing it. They kind of put themselves out there, but it it does help with this whole process. Um, so that's what that was all about. Got it. Yep. So, uh, 
So yeah, so so uh, we went public at Channel Advisor in 2013. Did this whole process. We did the confidential filing. Um, worked with the SEC um, and uh, actually used the same bankers and the same banking team that's on Stitch Fix. I just sent them a note and they said, "Yep, we're we're working on Stitch Fix." So I, I know exactly kind of how what's going to happen there. It's uh, going public is a very very exciting kind of a thing. It's uh, with lots of stress kind of piled on. So pretty interesting times and excited for for this company to get out. We we haven't had a lot of IPOs in the market in, in quite a while. Um, so, you know, this is this is going to be one of the most watched IPOs in a long time because we really haven't had a lot of e-commerce IPOs. And then the IPOs that we've had kind of in the larger digital world, uh, I'll kind of put two out there. Snapchat, they went public at a $30 price point and it's now 15 And then Blue Apron went public at 10 and is now 5 So those are not really successful IPOs. So, um, so, so you have kind of a bad data point out there. Then we have this company that kind of you know, has surprised everyone with the scale uh, that it's at. Uh, and there's this kind of waiting group of e-commerce and digital companies that are going to be watching this one really closely. And if this IPO can go off, not only price well, but sustain well for, for a year or two, uh, I think it means good things for this this kind of cohort of companies that are are probably ready to go. So in there, the ones that, that I kind of think about are, you have Wish, which is the marketplace of largely Chinese goods, Boxed, uh, Pinterest, House, Flipkart, Stripe, Fanatics, Instacart, Warby Parker, and Casper, and Kendra Scott. Kendra Scott's like more old school, but I thought I would throw it in there because it was kind of interesting. Um, most of these are unicorns, which means they have received a billion-dollar private company valuation. And you know, when you kind of think through the scale that they have to be at to do that um, – you know, most of these companies are going to have revenue that are are very much north of 100 million, if not kind of closing in on 500 million and a billion dollars. So they're definitely in that kind of class of companies that have the scale, the growth, the brand to be able to go public. Um, also, it's it's interesting because we don't have a lot of data on public e-commerce companies. Um, that's because a lot of the ones that get ready to go public get snapped up by Amazon, and that's actually you know not out of the question that uh, uh, maybe Stitch Fix doesn't actually make it public. There's there's still this is kind of the you know the about halfway point of that six month process. I imagine before the end of the year they'll price and go out. Um, but a lot of times these S ones stimulate buyers to come out and kind of say. Hmm, this is my one time I have to buy this before it becomes public. Let, let me kind of take a nibble at it. So uh, the so we'll have to keep an eye on that. The the public companies that are out there, there's really only three. So you have Cafe Press and Overstock, and those are kind of micro caps. They're kind of sub billion dollars. The most successful public e-commerce company uh, still around is Wayfair. Uh, it has a six billion dollar market cap. That's about two times its revenues. Um, I think uh, you know if you were gonna hold my feet to the fire on stitch fix at a billion dollar revenue growing 30%. I think it probably is worth a three to five X multiple. So I think we're going to see a, a market cap, um, uh, you know, in the three to 5 billion range. So a, a much better multiple because it is much more subscription kind of, uh, uh, recurring revenue than you see at a warfare, which kind of has to sell everything each time, especially furniture. You know, I don't think, you know, there's certain events in your life when you need furniture, and then then you're kind of out of the furniture biz for a while. They also have shown a lot more profitability than Wayfair did, right? Yeah, yeah, they're they're definitely you know just a different model, but yeah, a lot lot better gross margins and net margins. Um, 
And then the other thing I look at when I see these S1s from an IPO's perspective is what is the banking syndicate? The the bluest of blue chip banks are Goldman Sachs and Morgan. And uh, what you do is when you look at the page, uh, and they actually put a digital copy of it even in the PDF or or on the S1 over uh, with the SEC – there's different positions. They mean different things. The lead banker gets this position. It's a larger font. Uh, and there's all this kind of history around this that we can't go into, but it's pretty interesting. Um, and the you always look at the left first and the largest upper left. It's called lead left is Goldman Sachs uh, in this example. Um, so Goldman Sachs is the the bluest of blue chips. Uh, yeah, you know Jim Cramer calls them Golden Sachs slacks. Uh, and uh, another good company is uh, they rarely do things with with Morgan Stanley. Those two kind of go head to head. It's kind of like oh I don't know. Uh, uh, I can't think of a good analogy. Your your two sports teams that are bitter rivals, they 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 usually don't do well the together. Jets and the Giants. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Uh, and then uh, so so you don't have Morgan Stanley on this, but you do have J.P. Morgan, which is a very good bank, and then you have Barclays, RBC, Stiefel, Piper Jeffrey, and William Blair. And what what you do here is um, in the IPO, you're thinking short and long term simultaneously. So the banks you pick, you want uh, a great firm that's going to help you sell your IPO. So they have relationships with the buyers of IPOs, which are institutional buyers, which tend to be hedge funds and mutual funds. And uh, all these banks have that, uh, and they will do a great job selling this company. Um, but then the secondary consideration is longer term. What you're trying to do is get a great internet analyst that, or, or a great analyst, uh, and this is called a sell side analyst that can convince buy side analysts that your company is awesome and, and publish about it. And here on the show, we talk a lot about you know uh, these analysts. We've had several on the show talking about the things that they report on, and uh, Goldman Sachs. You have. Uh, you know, all these guys have really good analysts, uh, and uh, many of them may be familiar with folks on the show. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. So Heath Terry is the big uh, e-commerce uh, guy over at Goldman Sachs. So I imagine that's who will cover it. And uh, on down the line, there, there's some really good analysts. Um, so once they go public, there's this waiting period, and then you'll have the analysts cover it. And, and um, it's good as a company to have people that really understand your business uh, out there banging the drum. So that that's kind of what you do when you do the banking process. Uh, last couple of little points on the public market thing. Uh, their ticker symbol is going to be SFIX, uh, and they're going to raise $100 million. This is really just a placeholder. What you do is you put out this initial draft, and then you start to get reaction from, um, from buyers, uh, early reaction. And then as you see how the market's going, you raise more, and then you come up with your pricing and that kind of thing. They're using they're, There's two public markets that you go on, the New York Stock Exchange. That's what we did at Channelvisor. Uh, they have chosen to go with the NASDAQ. It's kind of a um, six to one, half dozen to other. I do like the um, another aspect of an IPO. It's a raising money kind of a thing, uh, and then it's a PR event. And I do like the PR aspect of the New York Stock Exchange. You get on CNBC, you get to ring the bell. You're right there in New York. NASDAQ, you just go and press a button at the NASDAQ Market Center in Times Square. So a little less exciting and, and grandiose than the New York Stock Exchange. Um, the other thing I would point you to is what, what we're going to run through here is called the prospectus, and that's the S1, which is the, the technical number given to these documents by the SEC. Um, and it's funny, when people read these that aren't familiar with them, they get uh, really bogged down at the top. The The first 50 pages of an S1 are really CYA. It's a bunch of lawyer stuff to keep people from suing. So skip past that stuff and don't get wrangled up. It, it, it feels like this kind of you – know, I've heard lawyers call it a uh, – 
a parade of horrors. It's like literally a list of all the things can, can go wrong. Um, and it's a really weird way to kind of like, you know, tell people about your company, but it's just kind of the way it's done. So, uh, you know, it's like everything that could possibly go wrong with your company. And then you're like, and then here's, here's why we're so excited. <laughs> it's a really strange, strange way to do it, but it's done to, um, you know, reduce risk of litigation. So skip through that and go right to the management discussion. And usually there's a letter from the CEO. So, uh, you know, we'll put a link to this over on the SEC in the show notes or, or a link to download the PDF and use your find function and go right to management discussion. So awesome tip. Let the record show uh, channel advisor got a way cooler uh, uh, ticker symbol than, than uh, stitch fix did. Thanks. Yeah. S fix or S F four or nine, nine SF nine. <laughs> um, Cool. And then you know, another thing that is good about this is we haven't had a lot of billion dollar exits in e-commerce. So if if my math's right, you know, again, this could be uh, hopefully north of two and, and in that three to five range, depending on how it prices. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of VC investment in the e-commerce industry uh, because we haven't had a lot of exits. So VC dollars chase the exits uh, and exits are uh, commonly referred to as liquidity events. Uh, the two most popular are acquisition or M&A and then IPO. So just a quick history here um, of some of the bigger ones. So we had in 2009, we had Zappos at 850 million, Quidzy, diapers.com at 545 million. Uh, that's Mark Laurie 1.0. And then we had Kiva at 775. I don't know if I would count that as e-commerce, but but uh, I know those guys, so I always like to talk about it. 2012, um, Trunk Club, which is very relevant to this one, was acquired by Nordstrom for 350 50 million in 2014. That's not in the billion dollar kind of close to club, but I thought I'd include it because of the proximity to Stitch Fix. Um, and then uh, Mark Laurie 2.0 sold Jet to Walmart for $4 billion um, on August of 16. So that guy uh, had like a $5, five billion in just like the last four years, so that's, that's pretty good. Dollar Shave Club was acquired by Unilever for a billion. Uh, and then Chewy was recently acquired by PetSmart for $3 billion. Uh, and then Zulily was an interesting one. They kind of got the, the double whammy, so they went public uh, and had about a $3 billion acquisition um, uh, valuation and then were acquired. Uh, that IPO didn't do well over time. Uh, they had some fatigue with their customer base, uh, and then it was acquired by QVC for two and a uh, two point four billion uh, in August of twenty fifteen. So that seems like a lot when I say it like that, but but since 2009, we've really had like nine kind of exits, um, six or so that are over that billion dollars, and and three of them were in the last 18 months. So as an industry, we really need a lot more of these kind of exits to keep venture capitalists investing. So this is really important for our industry. I think we all uh, all need. Uh, it would be great for this to do really well and and kind of bring people back to the e-commerce fold. Uh, and, you know, uh, Amazon has cast a pretty dark shadow when you, when you talk to people that I know that are trying to raise money. Um, you know, they, it's the Amazon question that really stumps them. You know, every VC wants to know how is your five or $10 million company going to survive in an Amazon world? And now if this does well, people can say, well, Stitch fixed it. So, so I'm sure we can. So that's some of the implications at a macro level. Jason, why don't you uh, – we've kind of uh, gone a pretty long way without actually saying what Stitch Fix does. So why don't you bring people up to speed on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Stitch Fix is uh, – you could think of as an apparel retailer. Uh, they were founded in 2011, and they had what uh, I believe was a novel concept back in 2011 
they would curate a box of items for a customer. And initially this was targeted just at women. Um, and so you, you would do a subscription and, and in that subscription, you would get a box of five, uh, items of apparel or accessories and uh, you could keep all some or none of the items in that box. Um, so essentially you paid $20 up front, which was a sort of a styling fee. The first time you use the service, you fill out a, a survey so that the, the stylist can get your preferences. Um, they uh, Stitch Fix picks five items they think you'll like and want to keep. They send them to you. Uh, if you like them, you pay for them. If you keep all five, you get a 25% discount. If you just want to keep some of them, you pay for them and send back what you don't want. Um, if you like none of them, you can send the whole box back and you're just out the $20 styling fee. And I should mention the styling fee is waived if you keep any of the items. Um, so back in 2011, uh, this is the founder, Katrina Lake, like literally getting customers to pay her for a box. She would go shopping at Nordstrom's, buy things, um, know what the return policy was at Nordstrom's, send them to the customer, and if the customer didn't keep them, she would return them to the, the retailers that she bought them from. So she's, she's managing all these store returns. She's almost like a personal concierge um, for, for these shoppers. And she turned this into a, a very significant automated business. Um, so over time, that, that business model has sort of evolved. Initially, it was subscription only, and you could kind of pick the frequency of the subscription. You could get a box every month, every other month, every six months, um, you know, on, on, on a different set of periods. Uh, they they uh, shifted to a model where you still can have that subscription, but you can also just order a fix on demand. Um, so you essentially don't have the pressure of a box showing up when you don't need one, and whenever you feel like you just need to refresh your wardrobe or... or uh, want something new, you, you can go online, hit the fix button, and, and they'll send you a new box. Um, originally, they were all selling other people's uh, products, and uh, they, they started to develop their own brands, what they, they call uh, exclusive brands. Um, and so now uh, a, a, a substantial portion of the, the products in the box are coming from Stitch Fix, which we'll talk more about later. Um, they also added men's uh, much more recently, and as Scott mentioned, the men's products scaled up uh, much more rapidly. They've also offered plus-size boxes, and I think the newest offering is maternity boxes. Um, and so all of this uh, from a, a CEO, Katrina Lake, who's now... 34 years old, which is uh, pretty impressive. Um, you know, we're talking about the rare air of $1 billion e-commerce exits and the, the relatively small number of, of e-commerce companies that successfully do an IPO. Um, when you talk about those companies that are led by a woman CEO, um, it's, it's like even extremely more rare, which is, uh, I think exciting and, and, uh, uh, uh pretty awesome. Uh, so you, you, uh, if you were to read her letter in the S1, she kind of highlights um, that there are three core principles of the business, right? The first one is uh, that they're always customer-centric, that they're always focusing first on the needs of their customer. Uh, number two, personalization is the future. We'll be talking a lot about that. And number three, they think they have this unique combinations of humans and data um, and, and they have made some very substantial investments in AI, which we'll be talking about. And they think the unique combination of humans and data are better together than either human stylists or uh, artificial intelligence is uh, by itself. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is the business. Uh, order a fix, get these five products, keep what you want, 
um, uh, send back what you don't. Um, and I, I would argue that it spawned a, a large industry of similar uh, competitors in the same categories and in other categories like uh, children's apparel, for example. Um, so, Scott, before we go too much further, uh, do you want to dive into how they, they were funded uh, once they got beyond Katrina's original um, Nordstrom's credit card? Yeah, yeah. And um, she used to work at Polyvore. I don't know if you uh, ever met her back when she was there. The Polyvore founder is an ex-eBay guy that I've met several times. And uh, so she was she was kind of very early on in this this whole industry to start with. So pretty pretty neat that she spun out of that and has you know, effectively lapped them, I think, at this point. Um, so, yeah, and I, I share your enthusiasm for female founders and CEOs. I think it's great. The only other – I was kind of – when you said that, the only one I could think of – was Meg Whitman at eBay. I, I can't think of another, you know, kind of a, a CEO, female CEO kind of in our industry, um, you know, at, at, you know, the IPO level. So kudos. The, so they are capital efficient and, you know, I, this is kind of, you know, saying they only raised 45 million, uh, you know, is interesting because 45 million is no, no, it's not chump change, but, uh, you know, it takes a lot of capital to build a business like this. And I think, you know, many billion dollar businesses have soaked up, you know, I said it before, but a hundred, 200, 300 million, um, to build a SaaS business this big, you would almost take 500 million. Um, so, so very impressive. Uh, and so the funding history, in 2011, Lightspeed Ventures did a seed round. Uh, and then 2013, they had an A round from Baseline. Uh, and then uh, very quickly on top of that, and and so that was in February of 13. And then in October of 13, they did a $12 million B with Benchmark. Uh, and then Benchmark is the company, is one of the blue chip VCs in the Bay Area. Um, I think Gurley, uh, Bill Gurley is on their board from there. Uh, he that, That's one of the firms that did eBay and Yahoo in the early days. Uh, uh, also an outspoken uh, Uber investor. Uh, and then they did a series C, uh, in, let's see, 24 in 14, six, 14. So June of 14. Uh, and then they did a top off kind of in 2017 of 12 million. Uh, and, uh, that's called a mezzanine round. So ABC and mezzanine, um, for, for those of you that haven't raised venture capital, what the way it works is an, an IPO is the same way you, you, you issue new shares. So uh, each time they kind of value the company at a pre-money, you add in this capital, you get a post-money, and then you get diluted. Um, I mentioned this because I saw a lot of conversations on Twitter. Uh, when you look at the ownership, you end up with baseline at 28%, benchmark 25%, light speed at 11%, uh, and then Katrina Lake, the founder, at 16%. Um, there's, there's obviously a case there that says that's not fair. Katrina should own 80% of this. Uh, as a founder, you, you, what you're doing is you're kind of making this bet when you raise venture capital. You get, you get more than just capital, but just kind of keep it to that conversation. You're making this bet that, gee, when I take this 45 million and give up, you know, 85% of the company, uh, there's going to be a bigger outcome than if I didn't do that. And you know, clearly, in these kind of cases, uh, you take her 16%, you multiply it by that that three billion, you get like 450 million kind of evaluation of her ownership. Uh, probably the right choice, but you never you never know the other side of the outcome. 
outcome. You know, maybe if she had bootstrapped this and waited five more years, it would actually she could own eighty percent of it and have just a big as an outcome. In fast moving markets uh, where you have companies like Amazon swimming around, uh, it's uh, you know speed uh, is definitely something that that takes is probably a good choice to raise capital for. Uh, and then I think that covers the big pieces. So, uh, you know, we don't want to get too bogged down in the financial stuff, but um, Jason, do you want to hit some of the revenue highlights? Yeah. Uh, so they've had a nice hockey stick, which is, I think, one of the things that, that has uh, caught a lot of folks' attention. Um, 2014, they they reported seventy three million dollars in revenue. Two thousand and fifteen, they ramped up to three hundred forty two million dollars in revenue. Uh, Two thousand sixteen, um, they they doubled that to seven hundred thirty million dollars in revenue. And in their fiscal year two thousand seventeen, which is over as you mentioned, uh, they were just under a billion dollars at seven nine hundred seventy seven million dollars, which parenthetically has to has to kill them uh, that they didn't quite get over that. That uh, be um, so. So it's been a pretty good ramp up, and uh, several of those years were profitable. Um, it looks like they they ramped up some expenses in 2017, and maybe weren't as profitable. Yeah, and then the the growth rate. So just look at the growth rate between 14 and 15, like almost 400 percent growth. So so crazy. Uh, I bet that was an exciting time to be there. And then from 15 to 16, 113 percent growth. Def, definitely torrid, but not as crazy as 400 percent. And then between 16 and 17, 34 percent. And and this is where you know what I'm imagining happened is they kind of said. You know, should we go raise a fifty million dollar internal round, or should we just you know slow the growth rate, get profitable, improve the model? Uh, and this is this is interesting decision because what most pundits would tell you is Wall Street loves growth. So if they could have kind of gone public at a hundred percent growth rate, that probably would have been a different outcome than thirty four percent. But you know, I think in hindsight, it may actually be better that they're growing a little bit slower and more profitable because with the, um, I mentioned it, the the Snapchat problems and questions around their ability to get profitable and then Blue Apron kind of hitting the skids. I think this is the, this ends up being a nice balance between growth and profitability. So, so we'll have to kind of see how it prices. And um, then, you know, what I imagine is so if they they'll raise over north of a million hundred million dollars that gives you a, quite a bit of jet fuel to get that that engine going back up so i bet very quickly they'll try to get back to triple digit growth um the other thing i noticed looking at some of the numbers um they don't in the in the pnl they don't specifically break out sales and marketing or, or effectively marketing um but they do kind of wrap it up into a number that has gna uh so they call it sgm and that is actually growing a good bit faster than revenue. So uh, between in 2016, it grew 140% versus revenue at 113. And then in 2017, it grew 55% versus 34%. And what you what you see in some of these subscription models is in the early days, uh, you know, it's you, you find your early adopters and it's pretty inexpensive to get to them. But then as you grow, you're having to spend more and more and more on the acquisition of, of customers or, or the metric always commonly known as CAC, the cost to acquire customer. Um, did you see any other metrics around that, Jason? Um, yeah, well, so there were uh, like obviously one of the really interesting things is are they uh, capturing repeat customers and what's the lifetime value of those, those customers. 
Um, so they they did share a, a couple of things to give us some insight into that. Um, they they reported what they called this repeat rate, which is the percentage of customers from the previous year that purchase in the subsequent year. And so they're saying in in uh, 2016 that that was 83 percent, and in 2017 that was 86 percent, um, which sound pretty good. Uh, they also did this kind of convoluted cohort analysis um, that I'm, I'm going to rely on uh, uh, you to try to decode if anyone is, because um, I, I frankly uh, didn't follow it. It didn't seem quite as um, uh, straightforward as I might have expected on the one hand. But on the flip side, I guess I was uh, pleasantly surprised that they tried to give some visibility to that at all. Yeah, and what you're trying to do, uh, cohort analyses are, are very confusing because um, what you're trying to do, think of it like a, a graduating class. So uh, take your graduating class. Let's say you had a bunch of seniors that graduated in 2017 from high school, and then you followed them through college and the rest of their life, and you kind of saw what happened to those people. Um, that's a cohort analysis. So you're, you lock in time this group of customers acquired from a certain period, and you see what happens to them. So um, – the first thing they do in the cohort analysis is they they look at a 2014 cohort and they show the the value from that cohort was 639, uh, and then the value of dollars. So then the value of a 2015 cohort was 718. So I think what they did is they followed those 14 people from 14, 15, 16, 17, and they said those guys generated 639 per user over that life. Then they followed the 15 cohort and they followed them and they said that. That actually went up pretty nicely, you know, about, uh, let's see, what is that, 10%? Uh, and, you know, so that's good. That shows inside of that cohort what you have is a lot of factors. You have churn. So that's people that say, I tried this. I'm no longer going to use it. Churn gets more complicated in these models that do have the on-demand. Like, when does someone churn? Maybe they're on an annual plan and you have to wait a whole year to see if they've churned. Maybe they're, they're every two years they want to get a fix or, you know, if someone moves from a monthly to a quarterly, that's not really churn. So you, it gets really hard to measure churn. So inside of that 10% increase, you have some customers that are leaving, but then you also have some customers that are buying more. So what they're kind of saying here is the customers that ended up buying more you know, overrode uh, by about 10% economically the factors of churn. So that's what the story they're trying to tell. Uh, and it's interesting. I bet, you know, we don't have privy to this, but I bet if we looked at the initial S1 they filed, this wasn't here. And this is a reaction to Blue Nile, to not Blue Nile, but Blue Apron. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this felt like my, uh, you know, it felt very much like a, oh crap, we, we're going to have to really kind of figure out, explain to people what's going on here. Then if you take that data point, then they kind of looked and it looks like the 16 cohort came down a bit. Uh, and then they start looking at some of the first halves and um, what, you, what, you, what you see there. And they had a little blurb in their hair that said uh, they call them first half of a year. So there's kind of like the six month piece and then the second six months. And they show you some of that. And it's really front end loaded. So what happens is people buy a fair amount in the first six months and then it kind of declines there. Uh, and they, uh, they talk about it as an opportunity. It's also kind of a weakness, um, but it's an opportunity for them to get better with the data science. Uh, this mirrors uh, personal. My wife uh, was a stitch fix user, um, had it for about four or five months. And, you know, by the end of there had, had, you know, 
acquired enough clothes and, and was kind of burned out by the process of forgetting to return it and getting fees and all this kind of stuff. So uh, it's definitely something, a little bit of a yellow flag, something they need to work on. When, when I do my math, um, they give you just enough to kind of figure this out. So they say the first half of 2016 is 335, but then the total was like, what did I say, uh, 506 or something like that? Yeah. 506. So then when you do the math, then the second half is 154. So, you know, uh, literally it drops by half over the period of a year. So let's see, what would that be? Uh, two thirds would be in the front half and then a third on the back half. So, uh, kind of interesting kind of trend there. It's not clear how much of that's churn. I know people saying, I don't want a box at all, or how much is you filled up their wardrobe and their closet. They're good to go. Yep. And I, I guess I should have mentioned another potential way to think about this is uh, we did not mention the growth in their active customer base. But but back in 2014, when they did 73 million in sales, um, they had 261,000 active customers, which they're defining as someone that bought a box in the last or that received a box in the last 12 months. And if you look at their growth of active customers uh, at the end of 2017, they're like uh almost 2.2 million active customers. So the the growth has been uh, year over year is always the same order of magnitude as their revenue growth, but it it has been slower than the revenue growth. So the the, the fact that um, their, their revenue is growing faster than their active customers, um, we, like on the surface, it looks like a good thing because it, that, that implies that they're, they're driving greater revenue per customer as, as, they get a, a bigger and more mature customer base. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. And, um, I have a feeling that as they do their road show. So one thing to keep an eye out for, if, if this is topics interesting for you, uh, when you do your road show, you actually have to record it. And it's part of the sec rules that anyone can watch the road show. Um, so it's on uh, retail Roadshow. Uh, if you go to retailroadshow.com, you will find that, uh, there'll be a window of time and, and these things expire pretty quickly. So both Jason and I will tweet when it's up. Um, and what you'll have there probably is Katrina and probably the CFO and maybe someone else, maybe the COO, uh, actually walking you through the roadshow. And I bet that they have to peel out a little bit more information because I think investors are going to be very keenly tied into this and trying to understand really what's churn. I, I think I think that's the one piece missing here and, and people are going to want to know that. So it's going to be interesting to see if they have to disclose that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should have mentioned uh, uh, one other fun tidbit uh, when you were talking about the the sales and marketing spend. Um, they did mention in the S one that they actually hired Miller Brown to do this aided awareness study. Um, so essentially, in like May of or in December of 2016, uh, they went out and interviewed a bunch of women that were in their target market, which are uh, women that are making over fifty thousand dollars a year that live in the U S. and said. Uh, are you familiar with Stitch Fix? Um, and 28% of the women that, that they surveyed said yes in uh, in December of 2016. So then in May of 2017, after they sort of doubled that ad spend, that aided awareness went up to 41%. Um, I like I would take aided awareness with a, a pretty large grain of salt. Um, because you're you're asking someone if if they remember if they're familiar with something, and a lot of people will just frankly lie because they don't want to say they're not familiar with something. Um, but if it's true that that forty one percent of of their target market are now familiar with them, um, 
like that implies that the the next big tranche of growth is probably harder to achieve than the the last one was because it's it's a heck of a lot easier to go from twenty eight percent to forty one percent than it is to go from forty one percent to seventy five percent. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Del Rey had an interesting article out talking about how you know it, it's really kind of a non coastal audience. I don't know. He didn't have any data that really supported that, but you know, I think when you get two million people, you have to kind of be spreading out through the Midwest and whatnot. So, so interesting. Yeah. And I think part of it is just their, include that. their price points are tar- like, th- these are not like super premium price points. Um, and these, are, you know, in general, these are not, um, designer level apparel. And so it's, you know, uh, it's, it's meant for sort of, uh, more modest consumers. And I think there was even, I can't remember if it was in the interview, um, or, or something that Katrina said recently, but she talked about they, they at one point had a pretty bad inventory glitch where they way overbought and the, the root cause of overbuying the wrong inventory was that they were buying sort of on trend stylish stuff and their customers were were responding that they they didn't keep any of the items because they were inappropriate to wear at the PTA meeting for example or the you know um the 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 sort of everyday occasions that their customers were were hoping to use the products for and so i think that that helped define the the target and the use case for Katrina yeah and that's a really good uh kind of transition to the ai machine learning and personalization it's, this is kind of a uh, it's really interesting read from that perspective. I've never seen anything quite like it. So, and I know you spent some time on it. So, so take us through that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost hard to talk about machine learning and personalization separately. Katrina in her in her letter talked about those two being big premises. Personalization is super important, and then machine learning plus humans, um, you know, being the secret sauce. And uh, the reason it's hard to talk about them separately is because largely what you're doing with machine learning is more personalizing the the offer um, in in their in their their case the actual products to each customer. Um, so I do want to start by uh, talking a little bit about this uh, how they use AI overall. Um, so you fill out a sixty question survey and then they want to pick the five items that you're most likely to keep and they they don't have a standard starter box, so it's not like they're sending the same box to everyone. Everyone's box is going to be different based on current trends, uh, seasons, what they have in inventory right now, and the the answers to the sixty questions that they know about you. And so one way to do that is have a stylist that that read your 60 questions and then have him or her go pick the five items. Um, and another uh, way to do it is to to use some sort of algorithm to to pick those items. Um, and so initially, the the model at Stitch Fix was let's ha- establish a computer algorithm to pick those items and then let's let the stylist override it um so you know we'll we'll pull a a list of candidate items for the stylist and maybe you know that has eight items in it and you'll let the stylist pick the final five or maybe the the algorithm shows the first five and the stylist can say yay or nay um but interestingly early on they hired this guy eric colson to be their chief algorithm officer and build this algorithm to figure out what you you send in that first box based on the answers to your survey. Um, And Eric is an interesting guy because he was literally the VP of data science at Netflix 
um, which we all use as one of the best examples of AI-driven businesses. I think he was also a data scientist at Yahoo. So a super credible guy that's been working at Stitch Fix on the this interesting answer to this question, how do I pick the five right things to send to this first customer so that's sticky, so that she buys some of them, so that she's profitable, but also so that she keeps using the service? Because if those first five items are wrong, your, your odds of getting another chance are dramatically lower. Um, so then they're also going to use AI once you pick some of those first items and don't pick some of those first items, they're going to use that data to refine the items they send you in subsequent boxes. And that's where they start getting this really valuable contextual data um, that's both implicit and explicit. Like they implicitly know you return something and they can make inferences about why you returned it. Um, but there's also an option for customers to tell uh, the stylist, why they didn't like something. And so they get this explicit information. The hem was too long. It didn't fit me well. All, all of these sorts of things. And so very early on, um, Stitch Fix was uh, a believer in leveraging deep learning as the merchant instead of having humans sort of dictate what styles uh, customers would get exposed to, um, which to me is super interesting. But then in more recent times, they've actually taken it to the next level. So we mentioned uh, that they started launching their own products. Um, and I'm not sure if we said this, but uh, it, it sounds like about 20% of all their sales are from what they call exclusive brands, which are uh, uh, predominantly brands that they created. And they're actually using AI to design the products they offer. And so what they'll do is they'll say, hey, um, we have a, a big segment of customers uh, that don't like a neckline lower than eight centimeters. And the majority of products we buy from third parties have this 10 centimeter neckline. Um, and so we're going to design our own product and it's going to have a seven centimeter neckline. And so they're actually using – they broke each uh, – each piece of apparel into 60 different attributes and they're using AI to define the attributes that their customers would want um, that might not exist in the marketplace. And so they're using that to, to dictate what, what new products they build, which is super cool. Um, they have not, uh, that I have seen disclosed any hard data about how successful that AI is or how successful that AI uh, versus a human is. Um, but I, I was at another NRF event, uh, the, the, their, the NRF Tech Summit in San Diego this year, and one of the speakers was this woman, Megan Rose. And Megan is the founder of a, a smaller company that in some ways is Stitch Fix for jewelry. It's called Rockbox. And uh, very similar to Stitch Fix, you get a box of, of five pieces of jewelry, you keep what you want, you buy it. You return what you don't want. They have this extra model where you can kind of rent the jewelry by just keeping it for as long as you want until you want a new piece. Um, but they also are leveraging AI as their stylist. And what I found interesting is Megan shared some of the statistics that when they transitioned from human curators to machine learning, um, the purchase rate on the first box increased by 300%. So that that computer was three times more likely to pick items that that customer would keep. Um, they were able to improve their inventory efficiency by 85% when they went to the, the AI-based systems. And they they still keep stylists, but they have the, the uh, AI um, inform the stylist exactly like Stitch Fix is doing. And that enabled them to reduce their stylist cost by 30%. So if Stitch Fix is getting anything like those results, 
that's super substantial um, improvement uh, via this machine learning. And what's terrifying about it and cool at the same time is if you had a great stylist, a great person picking all these products and she kept doing it and she'd get better over time. And the first time she reads a survey, she gets it, you know, kind of right. But by the thousandth time she's read a survey, she's much better at it, right? Like this, the person would learn over time and her hit rate would keep getting better. Um, but then when you hired the next person, they would start at zero, just like the first person did, right? And the magic thing about this, the, uh, this machine learning algorithm is it has learned from all 2.2 million customers of Stitch Fix, um, and it keeps getting better and better. And so it, it scales much better and learns much faster than, than a human can. Um, and so, you know, potentially the more customers and the more time and service all these things get and the better the algorithms get, um, the, the, the profitability metrics on this business potentially keep going up uh, much faster because the conversion rate just gets better over time. Whereas a lot of other things we do tend to regress to this mean and you kind of keep the same, same conversion rate over time. Um, so it's going to be super interesting to see, uh, you know, if, if the, the actual performance of the company kind of bear out those hypotheses, uh, but for sure, uh, hypotheses, I always say that wrong, uh, for sure, uh, a, a significant angle of stitch fix is, personalizing the offer based on this machine learning. Um, I, I think they've said they have over 75 data scientists on staff now. Um, we used to joke because every time uh, Katrina would speak in an event, the number of data scientists she claimed had, had doubled and it, it almost didn't sound credible. Uh, but now that we see the, the numbers behind the business, um, it, it turns out that we probably shouldn't have been joking because it seems like they're all sort of credible numbers and in line with the the revenue growth that they've they've been experiencing. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting is they um, they also have a section in there that talks about their usage of data science. And the obvious one is you went through it all this, the styling algorithm. Um, and then they also talk about new style development and then uh, what you covered. Another one is, so they have something like how many was it? Let's let me get the number 3,400 stylists. Am I getting that? Yeah, that sounds exactly right. Yeah. That's the human okay. stylist. <laughs> yeah. These are human stylists. So they actually have uh, they called it a matchmaking algorithm. And so this data science will actually kind of, say, you know, maybe, maybe some of the stylists are uh, new moms and they'll map you up with other new moms. So I, I don't know what data they're looking at, but that that's kind of cool. And then these 3,400 stylists, many of them are part-time. So I, I don't know how the interface works, but I've seen Amazon do, do this with customer care. Uh, you do this thing where you can kind of check in, check out, and and then there's an online interface where you can kind of do whatever stylisting things they do. They, they talk about an application in the S1 about that. Uh, so I thought, that was interesting kind of a matchmaking is how they use data science um they use a lot of demand forecasting so uh you know the um, understanding this is this is interesting because they send all these products out right so the return rate is pretty important and uh it's not entirely clear to me what happens to all this stuff that comes back at I don't know if it goes in other people's boxes or what happens, but there's some demand forecasting that has to happen there. Um, uh, and then there's merchandise optimization, which is 
understanding how to order what size, color, and style kind of information. And they even talked about they use a lot of data science in the fulfillment centers. And they used one example. They have five fulfillment centers. So there's a matching of which people go to which data, which fulfillment center. Uh, and then also they uh, optimize inside the fulfillment center using the data science for pick path optimization. So I thought it was interesting that they've they seem to have built this engine and they're using it in like, what is that? Like seven or eight different parts of the business. So there's really good scale from those 75 data scientists. Yep. And we should mention, I think they've filed a number of patents as a result of all this, right? Like they have something like eight, eight pending patent applications. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I also thought it's interesting. They, they love data science, but then they also talk about there's a human kind of check element. So I guess, you know, if, I guess maybe something goes awry with these things. Sometimes like it want, everyone thinks they need purple socks or something that they'll have humans that catch that. Yeah. I, I interpret that as twofold, like that, that there is sort of a final check, but I also think that they have decided that customers respond better to a human interaction. So I, I think um, that the, the reason that, that one of those core principles is AI plus humans is, you know, there's a lot of businesses where they would just try to get the AI really right and have a very impersonal experience and, you know, just have, you know, let the customer know the computer is selecting these items for you. Um, I think the Stitch Fix model is that they would like you to build a relationship with that stylist and rely on that stylist as a person. And if you're going to fire Stitch Fix, I think they want you to feel like you're firing your friend, Susan, who's your stylist, not just fi firing some some computer that's that's using math to pick outfits for you. And so I think the human element both has a practical element, but I also think it has a, a strong marketing branding uh, element for them as well. Yeah, they gave this really interesting uh, case study, and then we can move on from machine learning. They said, uh, one example, our Delilah embroidery neckline knit top is purchased 52% of the time. Uh, and then what's interesting is our, uh, our algorithms uh, can determine how likely a client is up to 80% to purchase the item if we include it in that in her specific fix. So they could kind of show the power of the, you know, if you just blasted it out to everyone, you get 52%. But if you can like use the machine learning, uh, machine engine, you get like a, you know, a order of magnitude, higher conversion rate, which, which is pretty neat. Um, to your point on the, you know, What's interesting about the machine learning stuff is it used to be in that venture capitalists would look for – you're always looking for a company that has a bit of an unfair advantage. Uh, and that unfair advantage used to be network effects. So you know, like marketplaces are the kings of this, like eBay. More buyers brings more sellers is this network effect. LinkedIn, the more people – social networks have this too. Um, but now what's interesting is those that data on 2 million clients and think about all the you know the transactional data. There's There's probably – I don't know. You know, uh, bazillions of data points there. Uh, any company, even an Amazon that has to compete with these guys, they, they're going to have to kind of climb that mountain. So it makes it really, really hard for a startup to catch up. And then you, you pretty quickly dwindle down the number of co companies that can compete here to like maybe three or four. You could have maybe a Macy's and, and their advantage would be they have more customers so they can get to that 2 million pretty quickly. So, uh, pretty interesting uh, application of machine learning. And, and I think this will be the first machine learning IPO that I've, I'm aware of. So that'll be another kind of neat thing that it's also in our space of e-commerce. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, two things I would just highlight there um, that 
I think they're trying to generate, you know, a version of a virtuous cycle here um, or, or an Amazon flywheel that they, they significantly invested in their own machine learning tech. Um, and so they, they have that capability that we just covered. Um, but they also have a business model that just gets them more valuable data, right? So if you think about it, most apparel manufacturers are totally disintermediated from the customer. So they get no data from their actual customers. And even if you're a retailer or even if you're a vertically integrated retailer, you're the gap and you make all this stuff and you sell it through your stores. Uh, once it leaves your store, for the most part, it's gone. And you, you, know, you, you have a return rate. You want it to be as low as possible. Um, but you really, you know, this, this try before you buy, send them five things, get back what they don't love, um, gets you a much more valuable data source. So the fact that they both have this more valuable data and then they have proprietary technology to act on that that data is a a, a potential flywheel for them um comma i i still think it's interesting and somewhat controversial the amount of investment they made in the the uh, the core machine learning technology right like so i could imagine when they they st- started this in 2011 and I assume the machine learning came in a couple of years after that 2013 you could look out at the state of what was out in the market and say if I'm going to be good at this I have to build it myself and if I want it to be a, a core competency I need to to build it myself and for sure you need your own experts um, but the last five years have seen such a huge improvement and evolution of the off-the-shelf tools um, that it almost certainly has to be the case that uh, these guys have spent a bunch of money building their own machine learning tools that are, you know, frankly, probably inferior to the the version of TensorFlow that Google gives you for free today. And so it it is they may have been a little early in the curve um, having expertise about their data and about the the, um, you know, uh, applying the machine learning models to their data and having a unique data set um, seems like a huge competitive advantage. Uh, I imagine some smart people could debate about how valuable their their investment in their own machine learning technology was versus leveraging some of the the amazing technology that's coming on the market now. But but uh, I'm not sure we'll ever know the real answer there. Yeah, time will tell if a competitor can get there with a lot less and catch up. Then uh, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, a couple of uh, anything else on machine learning. No, no, I think we we covered that in great depth. Yeah, uh, a couple other kind of miscellaneous little tidbits. Uh, they talk a lot about being a good brand partner in this one. So they they talk about they have over seven hundred brand partners, uh, and some of those brands have elected to provide some exclusives in in the Stitch Fixes. Uh, and then, as Jason mentioned, they do have their own private label, and they call that exclusive brands. Uh, and Jason and I were debating. My read was twenty percent of Fitch. Stitch Fix's exclusive brands were were private. Uh, 20% of everything was their own private label, but you kind of read it as 20% could be kind of including those non-Stitch Fix brand partners, exclusive things. <laughs> yeah, they did mention that that some third-party brands give them exclusive products. And so, like, unclear whether that 20% is stuff that Stitch Fix designed or a combination of stuff that's only sold by Stitch Fix. Yeah, and this reminds me of our Amazon private label discussion where where part of Amazon's private label strategy is that their data science is saying, look, we need a widget like this and no one's doing it. You know, we need batteries that come 
24 to a box and not in a packaging that you can't open in quantity eight. So uh, interesting to see that. Um, another little tidbit is, so they talk about outsourcing the manufacturing of that private label called exclusive brands. Uh, but in 2017, they actually acquired a pretty large, I think it was 20,000 square foot uh, facility that's actually an apparel making uh, equipment and, and company in Pennsylvania somewhere. So it, it felt like they were going to go all the way vertically integrating and start actually making their own things in the United States, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, although I do think in the S1, they they uh, made it very clear that like you should not expect them – like to actually fabricate in the U S that they wanted some capability in the U S for experimenting purposes, but that like, uh, you should not invest in them based on the premise that they were going to become a U.S. manufacturer. Yeah. And then, uh, people wise they have, uh, and this is pretty impressive. 5,800 people total, uh, 86% identify as female. So that is pretty amazing, uh, which includes 55% of the management team. They have five fulfillment centers over 1.5 million square foot, uh, 1500 employees in the fulfillment centers, 3,400 stylists, 200 client experience associates. Um, which is actually pretty interesting with 2 million customers. That's like, what is that? One per a hundred, no, a thousand. Yeah, so that's a good ratio there. Um, the engineering team is actually pretty small. I was surprised, 95 engineers. Uh, so that's that's pretty lean mean for kind of the scale they're at. And safety, I guess the 75 data scientists get it closer to effectively 150, which is closer to what I would think it would be. So uh, that's how the people break out. Largest chunk is the stylist and then the fulfillment center employees, uh, followed by um, – you know, the client experience associates and then a uh, relatively small uh, engineering and data science team. Yep. Um, and this was not surprising, I suspect, to you or I, but you, I still talk to a lot of people that aspire to be a billion dollar e-commerce business, and they still imagine that they're doing that out of a single fulfillment center. Yeah, no. And I, I yeah, I mean that, yeah, not, <laughs> not very possible. And, and like, this is a, a perfect example of, you know, again, at they're, they're not at a billion dollars yet. And they're, and they, they have a customer facing business where a human's interacting with every customer. And yet still the largest portion of their, their workforce is, you know, that are, are, are close to the, the second largest piece of their workforce is, is all those fulfillment employees. Yeah. I wanted more information on, um, you know, is each of these fulfillment centers just outbound? Because again, I imagine that that almost every box comes back with something. So imagine the it's the reverse supply chain that'll eat you alive on this stuff. So yeah, you know, reverse <laughs> reverse logistics are much more challenging yeah. than I mean, logistics are very hard. Reverse logistics are in order of magnitude harder. And you're right, like that's cooked into this model. Is there's always going to be a, a high level of re- reverse logistics. So that. That would be an interesting area to have some unique competitive advantages. And if they do, they they haven't uh, pitched them very hard. Yeah, and the data science didn't necessarily cover that. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine there's – so let, let's kind of think through it. So let's say they send out – of 2 million customers, let's say every month they send out a million boxes. Well, probably let's say 900 – uh, thousand come back with at least one item coming back. Um, some of them have all of them. What, you know, so that's hard. Someone needs to go through there and figure it all that out. You kind of know, but you have to match it up. Uh, and then what happens to it? You know, I, I don't do the brands allow them to kind of like 
put it back um, yep. or do they have to liquidate it? And then does each of these fulfillment centers have an outbound piece and an inbound? If they put it back on a shelf, that's like a whole – it's really super inefficient to like open a bunch of boxes and then put all that – stuff on shelves. So that doesn't seem logical. So I have a lot of kind of questions around that. I, I bet that's probably the hairy part of this thing. And there is uh, like, so I think this is more rumor than real problems, but so all of these industries are plagued with a little bit of the like, uh, wait a minute, is this closed stuff that already got returned from some other retailer? Right. And that the, the fuel gets flame there. Um, several of these services, and I think including Stitch Fix, have at some point shipped products that arrived at a customer's location with another retailer's price tag on it, right? And that, you know, uh, puts all kinds of questions in the, in the mind of the consumer. And you, you start wondering, like, wait, are, is this a TJ Maxx kind of play where they're getting the, the leftover stuff from some, some retailer where it couldn't sell. And then they're, they're, they're selling it at, at, you know, predominantly list price, which is part of the reason they have such good margins. Um, the, and, and the explanation that, that stitch fix gave, and I think, you know, this is blown over several years ago now, um, was no, 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 we're not getting anything, um, back from a retailer that we're selling to a customer, but sometimes we buy something from a brand and we've had a brand make a mistake and send us inventory that was pre-labeled with another retailer's labels on it before. And so that, you know, then, then created that whole set of conversations. Do you feel like the brands would let them return this stuff? I think you could, I, I do think brands would let them take returns and resell it. I doubt any brands are giving them stock balancing. Um, you know, you, you like, there's very little stock balancing in apparel these days where you can actually just return stuff that doesn't sell. Um, you know, there, there often can be some sort of negotiated terms where, um, the, the inventory that doesn't turn gets, uh, gets cost reduced over time and you get some price concessions and things that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, that that Stitch Fix probably feels like a pretty traditional retailer in having to match their supply to demand as well as they can, and then having to have a, start, a smart strategy for liquidating uh, the the inventory that they're not able to sell. Um, so I, you know, I I think that they they face some of the same challenges everyone else faces there. Uh, I did. There's one other. Uh, uh, thing that the the S one reminded us of, but we but uh, we could have known before this. Uh, Stitch Fix is running on Amazon Web Services. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so does Netflix, and it always makes me wonder. Like, do they sleep at night knowing that Amazon can? You know, I don't think Amazon would ever do this, but there's the potential for someone to kind of take a little peek in there and see what's going on under the hood. So that that would uh, it's like one of those very very tricky situations. There's not really a great alternative that I have found to AWS and. <laughs> And, but you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're funding and, uh, your competitor and your competitor has potential access to your, your secret sauce. Yeah. And even if they have no access, even if they're completely above board and they would never look at the data, um, you are, you're still funding your competitor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So that's, uh, you know, Amazon wins no matter what in, in today's world. I would, for the record, I would say like, uh, I mean, AWS is a great service. There's lots of reasons to use it. Uh, it does to me feel like Microsoft with Azure and Google with Google Cloud Platform like have some pretty competitive offerings these days. Yeah, yeah. Once you kind of get married into one of these things, it's a little bit of a roach motel. It's hard hard to check out. Exactly. <laughs> it's a big rearchitecture at some level that you have to do. 
So Jason, uh, let's kind of land the plane here. What, what do you think? So we, we've gone through a lot of the highlights, some some impressive scale on revenue, growth slowing a little bit. CAC looked like it's going up a little bit. LTV, hard to call with the cohort analysis. Looks like it's a little challenged on the back half of the first year. What, what's your conclusion? Uh, does, does this IPO mean that, that subscription commerce is the future or, or, or what do we look like here? Yeah. Um, well, so to me, that's a, it, that's a, a funny question. The, uh, we should, we should have mentioned earlier when you talked about some of these previous companies there, there have in the past been these tranches where there was some trendy fatty thing, um, and a bunch of companies had an exit based on that fad, right? And so the most the most obvious recent one would be flash sales that you know everyone got a a fancy valuation and a bunch of flash flash sale companies had had favorable exits in the beginning and less favorable exits at the end. And uh, you know today it's pretty clear that there's not a very exciting market for standalone flash sales. That you know potentially that's a a tactic uh, that a retailer would have, but it certainly isn't of itself a business model. And so when I look at these guys, if, uh, if you're, uh, evaluating them on the basis of subscription being the winning model, um, I think subscription is more likely to be a trend like flash sales. I think it's a, a super valuable, um, tactic, uh, that retailers are smart to use, but I don't think, uh, that the winning formula in e-commerce is, just to go all in on subscriptions. And part of the reason I think that is most of the companies we think of as subscription model businesses have largely had to abandon their subscription model in order to be successful, right? And so, you know, Stitch Fix is a very soft sell on the subscription model. Like they started out subscription only. Today, like when you go sign up, you'll you'll see, you know, giant a text next to all the frequency options options saying, or just get one whenever you want. Right. And so they're, they're really not hard selling the subscription and they, they don't tell us what the breakdown is. Uh, but I would be really curious to know what percentage of, of stitch fix customers are on an auto replenishment program versus just ordering ad hoc. Um, because I feel like in the, the actual subscription model businesses, we, we very frequently see this subscription fatigue. So your wife was an early Stitch Fix customer before they had the ad hoc model, and you mentioned she got fatigue. Um, I think that's the fundamental problem with all the, the meal kits that are subscription um, only, is they sort of, for economics, have to be subscription-based, and everyone gets subscription fatigue, and you eventually feel guilty that you're not cooking the meals every week, or you eventually feel like your closet's full of uh, clothes or jewelry, or your kid has too much clothes, or whatever the case is. I think basing the business on uh, purely on subscriptions is probably uh, not very sustainable. But I think if you forget the fact that Stitch Fix even has a subscription model and you just look at their fundamentals and you look at their revenue growth over five years, you look at their operating margins, um, you look at their customer acquisition costs, um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk, but like... It it certainly to me looks like there's a solid business there. Like, is it a good investment um, as an IPO? Uh, I'm the the least qualified person on this podcast to say, um, but this is a solid business that that could largely uh, grow from you know based on its own cash flows. Um, so again, I like the business fundamentals. I'm not uh, super uh, amorous of the subscription service being the secret sauce. Does that make sense? 
It does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we're not, we don't give investment advice here on the Jason Scott show. So not going to say go buy this IPO or not, but the, you know, the one thing I think wall street's going to scratch their head a bit on is the growth rate. So 32% in a world of e-commerce growing 15 may not be exciting enough. So, you know, I, I think, but that could be a platform for them to actually exceed expectations, right? So if, if they get priced at, let's say, um, 2x because of that 30% growth rate, they raise their $100 million and they're able to accelerate that, then um, everyone loves a, an acceler- accelerating revenue growth. Uh, uh, Jim Cramer calls it ARG. So, so uh, you know, that could be interesting. And, and with any IPO, you have to wait at least a year, 18 months to really see how the company does as a public company. So we'll be watching that really closely here at the Jason and Scott show and reporting after their first public quarter. And, and uh, as part of our normal news coverage, we'll let you know how this IPO goes. Yep. And Scott, question for you. Uh, let's, let's say they get a, a good price at the initial offering and it's well before the year. and We don't know how things are all going to settle out. Should we all expect to see a ton of other um, sort of uh, a style box models like come and try to get an exit and, you know, play on that hype even before we know whether this this really works long term or not? Uh, I'll say no. So I, I don't think this opens the door for other ones. So, for example, when box went public, it actually a lot of times when the first company that goes out, it kind of closes the door. So Dropbox couldn't get out because box got out and. Uh, so, you know, I, I think what will happen though, is if the IPO goes well and prices well, you will see some of those other companies I mentioned, maybe take a run at filing. So, you know, the, the, the market background couldn't be better right now We're we're hitting, you know, the Dow has hit new thousand mark, like 20,000, 21, 22, 23, uh, you know, in the last year. So, um, if anything, the, probably the biggest risk is that, you know, there's going to be, we're, you know, things don't always go up. So there could be a correction at some point. And, um, so that's the kind of thing that I think would close the window on, uh, if stitch fix goes out and we have some of these other unicorns kind of waiting by, uh, I think everyone's going to be rushing for the exits and it'll be interesting to see when the window closes. So we'll, we'll report on that as well. Gotcha. And then I guess just, just one other sort of uh, competitive thing that's somewhat interesting. You mentioned Trunk Cub being a sort of similar business model um, that had sold the Nordstrom for $300 million. Um, I wonder if it comes up at all in, in uh, this offering that Nordstrom then had to take a $200 million write-down on that, on that acquisition, right? Like, so that, that, that's a business with a very similar model targeted at a different customer base um, that, that economically at least, uh, did not do well. And then of course there, there are 30 or 40 competitors out there with somewhat similar models, um, you know, certainly not with as much traction as stitch fix, but the, the competitor that, that you would have to concern investors the most is that recently Amazon has of course announced a product in this space and that's the Amazon prime wardrobe and Amazon has announced some new unique reverse logistics to go with Amazon prime wardrobe that seemed like it could be a competitive advantage for them. Yeah, and you know, with with three hundred million customers to push this to, uh, you know that that is scary. So we'll have to see. You know, investors will vote with their wallets, and and we'll see how it comes out. Awesome. Well, that is probably a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We have used all our allotted time. Uh, we certainly appreciate everyone listening in for this extended episode, and hope you enjoyed this deep dive in a stitch fix. Let's keep the conversation going on Facebook. 
And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.